Episode 9. An Admonition to the Parliament. When Queen Elizabeth ascended England's throne in 1558, a significant number of dissenters and nonconformists returned from exile on the continent. Several members of this group had been in Geneva and were determined to bring Calvinist reforms to the Church of England. Known collectively as Puritans, these groups were the precursors to what would eventually become the Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and Separatists. In 1570, Thomas Cartwright gave a series of lectures, based on the Acts of the Apostles, drawing attention to the election and equality of ministers. In them, he proposed a reshaping of the Church of England, using the apostolic model as its blueprint, declaring that Presbyterianism was the only form of ecclesiastical governance ordained by God in Scripture. The first presbytery was established in 1572 at Wandsworth, and its leaders were Thomas Cartwright and William Perkins. In 1572, the anonymous pamphlet An Admonition to the Parliament was published with the aim of securing popular support for the Presbyterian form of governance. A group of Puritans, including Cartwright, Sampson, John Field, Thomas Wilcox, and possibly others, were responsible for writing the document. The publication of the pamphlet marked the transition from vestments debate to the admonition controversy, illuminating the profound disagreement among the Episcopalians in a more public discussion. Differences of opinion over these issues would be the determining factor in English church history for over a century. Following the example set by the participants in the vestiarian debate, the Presbyterians started to use the power of print to promote their message of reform. The appearance of the admonition precipitated a pamphlet warfare in which Cartwright and Whitgift were the principal disputants. The admonition controversy of the early 1570s marked the start of the first organized attack on the government of the established church in Protestant England. The debates surrounding ministerial attire and rituals in the 1560s had become irrelevant, for now, the very foundations and governance of the church were under threat. Whitgift supported royal supremacy and the Episcopalian polity, which Cartwright's Presbyterian system of church government challenged. Cartwright advocated for equality among ministers, calling upon the congregation to appoint a body of elders and pastors. Chosen by the congregation, these elders and pastors were in charge of instruction and the maintenance of order. Not only was the church polity at stake, but Presbyterian thought also implied a reordering of civil society, which considered civil governance merely provisional. For Cartwright, the state must become fashioned according to the body of Christ and be ultimately subservient to the church. Despite Cartwright's insistence on not interfering in civil matters, he acknowledged that the authorities should be able to compel unrepentant sinners to lead outwardly moral lives. Whitgift, proudly calling himself defender of the peace, was right in his evaluation that the adoption of Presbyterianism would destabilize the civil state. In contrast to Scotland, Presbyterianism emerged in England as a defiant response to the oppressive religious policies of the Queen and her bishops. 
it would not be long before these suppressed religious tensions would erupt into a controversy far more radical than anyone, even the early Puritans, had imagined. The simmering religious discord was about to rapidly evolve into an unprecedented dispute, going far beyond what even the initial Puritans could have anticipated. The previous Vestiarian crisis had stifled moderate calls for reform, forcing the more radical Puritans to seek shelter in parish lectureships and the city liberties. Parish lectureships were often the only source of income for ministers with no official clerical position or benefice. The financial security of an officially licensed preaching curate contrasted starkly with the poverty of his less qualified and often nonconformist counterpart. In London, for example, liberties were often in suburban districts or locations that were not under the jurisdiction of the City of London. In 1215, London actively participated in events leading to the creation of Magna Carta, appointing barons and a mayor to implement its provisions. The document names London, stating that the city will retain all its ancient liberties by land and water. The admonition to Parliament demanded the elimination of the episcopal hierarchy of the Church of England, replacing it with the system of church government ordained by God, Presbyterianism. The publication of this, the first open manifesto of the Puritan party, set the stage for the most important literary and religious duel in the Elizabethan period. Thomas Wilcox and John Field, two London clergymen, almost certainly wrote the pamphlet, the first classic expression of Puritanism. The admonition to the Parliament, meaning a firm warning or reprimand, was a Puritan manifesto demanding a non-episcopal constitution for the Church of England. It condemned the Book of Common Prayer both generally and on specific issues due to its resemblance to Catholic practices calling for a radical transformation within the Church of England, and demanding the removal of its corrupt leadership, often characterized by absenteeism, accumulation of multiple positions, hierarchical structure and excessive authority. It proposed their substitution with a Presbyterian administration consisting of ministers, elders, and deacons. In part, it was a rebuttal to Archbishop Parker's attempts at promoting uniformity and Elizabeth's repression of Parliament's attempt to modify the prayer book. The admonition contained two treatises. The first one, An Admonition to the Parliament, was written by Thomas Wilcox in a clear and concise style, with many biblical references and with little abuse. Wilcox asserted that the Church had not fully reformed, since it did not follow the biblical model in appointing elders and maintaining discipline. John Field wrote the bitter second part, entitled A View of Popish Abuses Yet Remaining in the English Church, using deliberately offensive phrases. In this section, he voiced his strong opposition to any association between the prayer book and vestments of the English Church and the papacy, attacking the cathedrals, labeling them popish dens. According to Field, church services lacked discipline, its parishioners were often distracted and disengaged. The noise from kneeling at the name of Jesus, disrupted readings of practice field deemed blasphemous, priests rushed through sermons, suspected of partaking in questionable afternoon frivolities, finally, he was deeply troubled by the congregation's limited biblical knowledge, noting they preferred the Gospels at the expense of the Old Testament. 
the admonition was not presented to Parliament, instead, it was published separately in June 1572. It was abandoned when the House was informed that the Queen would not allow its presentation. The admonition was very popular, quickly running to three editions. Wilcox and Field were swiftly apprehended and sentenced to a year's imprisonment for its publication and for breaking the Act of Uniformity. In 1573, Archbishop Parker recruited John Whitgift assisted by other bishops, to prepare a response in defence of the polity of the Church of England against the admonition. As a result, John Whitgift wrote an answer to a certain libel denouncing the admonition. Although Thomas Cartwright was not the original writer of the admonition, he swiftly rose to the defence of the Presbyterian viewpoint, with his rebuttal reply to an answer made by Dr. Whitgift against the admonition to the Parliament. Cartwright advocated in his response that a correctly restructured church should incorporate the four ministerial roles specified by Calvin, namely, instructors in faith, governance elders, charitable workers, and theological academics. Cartwright visited the two imprisoned London clergymen, John Field and Thomas Wilcox. He offered them support, later publishing his second reply to Whitgift's defence, in which he proposed a Presbyterian framework for the Church. The admonition controversy was not the first time that Whitgift and Cartwright had confronted each other over the polity of the Church of England. While at Cambridge, Cartwright's popular lectures gained him a large following among faculty members and students. By mid-1570, the university, church, and government, alarmed by Cartwright's attack on the church's polity, ordered him to be arrested. As the new vice-chancellor, Whitgift took on this task, and in December 1570, Whitgift and a jury of doctors of divinity and law called Cartwright before them. When he refused to retract his earlier statements, Whitgift, with the unanimous consent of the judges, and on a technicality, removed Cartwright from his professorship and prohibited him from preaching at Cambridge. Cartwright's response, pushed for increased emphasis on the power of scripture and the governance of the church by ministers and elders, instead of being controlled by superior clerical ranks like bishops. It demanded that Queen Elizabeth restore the purity of New Testament worship in the Church of England, removing the remaining Roman Catholic elements and practices from the Church of England. Whitgift responded in 1574 with the defense of the answer to the admonition against the reply of Cartwright. In response, Cartwright published a two-part second reply in 1575 and 1577, to which Whitgift did not respond. These pamphlets, described the Presbyterian system as the only acceptable form of church operation and governance, and gained widespread publicity. In reality, they declared war, not against the responsible queen, but against the bishops who enforced conformity as her instruments. The queen and her clergy predictably resisted this document, setting off a significant controversy in Anglican England which allowed everyone to see the widespread Presbyterian influences among Puritans. Outraged by Cartwright's disrespectful behaviour, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Matthew Parker, issued a warrant for his arrest. Thoroughly intimidated by this experience, Cartwright escaped to the continent, first to Heidelberg and then officiating as a clergyman to the English residents at Antwerp and then finally to Middleburg. In early 1573, 
the first phase of the Presbyterian offensive reached its peak. Ecclesiastical authorities struggled to shut down the Presbyterian presses and stop the spread of a message that was threatening the church's theological and organizational foundations. Anglican bishops struggled to fill the city pulpits with preachers who would advocate for the conformist position, while some Presbyterians were becoming some of London's most celebrated and sought-after preachers. A typical example was a young and engaging English priest, Edward During, a Cambridge academic, Puritan, and newly appointed divinity reader at St. Paul's. Known as a classical scholar, a controversialist, and a supporter of Thomas Cartwright, During was also a fiery preacher against his fellow clergy. Despite Whitgift's attempts to curb Cartwright's rising influence, the period post-admonition saw the publication of numerous religious pamphlets promoting Presbyterian views, and their anti-episcopal stance, which only intensified public interest. Robert Harrison was married at Aylsham, Norfolk, and in July 1573, he applied for the post of master of its grammar school. The mayor and several Norwich councillors supported his application, recommending him to Bishop John Parkhurst. However, Parkhurst expressed strong reservations against his appointment, criticizing his confrontational preaching style and his refusal to use excerpts from the Book of Common Prayer during his wedding ceremony. He also mentioned that Harrison's inappropriate conduct, including liturgical transgressions, persisted, despite numerous cautions. Following a direct plea from the Aylsham residents, Bishop Parkhurst was forced to concede, but only after he had expressed his disapproval in no uncertain terms. Even though During and a few other Presbyterian ministers were prosecuted for their role in distributing Cartwright's reply, while the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk, the Earl of Leicester and Sir Nicholas Bacon continued to protect them, Parker and the church officials were unable to neutralize their influence. The controversy surrounding the admonition, combined with the popular support for the jailed authors Field and Wilcox and the influx of nonconformists at Paul's Cross Church, ultimately led the authorities to finally realize they needed to implement a disciplinary action campaign. Only when Elizabeth finally intervened in 1574 were they able to effectively counter the growing Presbyterian movement. On the 11th of October, 1573, Peter Burchett, a crazed lawyer with tenuous ties to the Presbyterians attempted to assassinate Sir Christopher Hatton, an alleged crypto-Catholic and one of the Queen's favorite privy councillors. In reality, however, Burchett had stabbed the famous sea dog and treasurer of the Royal Navy, Sir John Hawkins, after mistaking him for Hatton. Burchett went on to prove his insanity by professing and then recanting the Presbyterian position, before finally murdering his jailer. Ultimately, Burchett's only link to the Presbyterians was his attendance that morning at a lecture given by the veteran Presbyterian Thomas Sampson at Whittington College. Despite being severely injured by the attack, Hawkins would survive. The same could not be said for Burchett, who would be hanged near the place of the attack. The Burchett incident in 1574, along with the uncovering of other plots, ultimately persuaded Elizabeth that Presbyterianism posed a dangerous and undermining threat. Finally, heeding the bishop's pleas for help, Elizabeth granted them the authority to suppress the Presbyterian movement. The bishops, therefore reissued the directives ordering the clergy and lay members of London to adhere to Parker's 39 Articles, 
Their action sparked a rebellion, resulting in the arrest of members of the Presbyterian community, including both clergy and laity. Tragically, different city jails claimed the lives of at least four Presbyterian ministers. Field and Wilcox finally completed their jail sentences and were released from Newgate. The threat of re-imprisonment by the still hostile ecclesiastical authorities forced them to maintain low profiles, waiting for a more favorable climate before resuming their reformist activities. Even though Cartwright could publish his later admonition replies and rebuttal tracts from afar, his absence from London severely weakened the Presbyterian cause. While these setbacks did not end the Presbyterian movement, they ushered in an Anglican resurgence, forcing the Presbyterians to bide their time until they could more effectively resume their push for reformation. Walter Travers was born in Nottingham in 1548. Travis, an English Puritan and theologian, studied at Christ's College Cambridge before moving to Trinity. As a senior fellow, Travers grew increasingly tired of debating his religious views with college master John Whitgift. His strongly Puritan views forced him to leave the university in 1570. Deciding to leave England in 1574, he relocated to Geneva, the home of Calvin and a sanctuary for Presbyterians everywhere. Once there, he was joined by his friend and fellow Puritan Thomas Cartwright, and they both quickly became friends with Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor and leader of the Genevan Reformation. In a further reply to John Whitgift's An Answer to a Certain Libel, Travers began working on his magnum opus, which became the Ecclesiastici Disciplini. It was intended to be the model for restructuring the governance of the Church of England along Presbyterian lines using the Bible as its sole authority. In the book, he sets out his scheme of reform in greater detail than any of Cartwright's previous publications. When ready to publish, he handed the manuscript to his intellectually gifted and influential friend Thomas Cartwright, a man Theodore Beza thought was unsurpassed in learning. Cartwright approved his plans and agreed to write a preface to the work and to see it through to publication. However, Cartwright was not a popular man back in England. His outspoken and critical stance on the established church had resulted in an outstanding arrest warrant for him in 1573. He therefore chose to go to the German town of Heidelberg, keeping a low profile, and it was from there that the Ecclesiastici Disciplini or the full and plain declaration of ecclesiastical discipline was published. To make tracing Cartwright and perhaps Travers to Heidelberg difficult, they chose the false imprint location of La Rochelle, together with a fictitious printer named Adam de Monte. In 1578, Thomas Cartwright ordained Walter Travers as a priest in Antwerp. Contemporary letters revealed that despite its anonymous publication, the majority of the English church's senior figures had little doubt that Travers was the author of the work. Similarly, evidence from the survival of numerous versions of the work, where the imprint location is defaced, indicates that many early users doubted its printing in La Rochelle. For years, the exact production location of the book remained unknown. After scrutinizing the typeface and telltale ornaments used by the printer, the bibliographer A. F. Johnson finally uncovered the truth in 1948. The unique combination of the size 86 Roman type and some unusual fleurons, particularly the one on the title page, 
directed him to a printer named Michael Skyrat in Heidelberg. Within a month of his appointment at Aylsham Grammar School, and despite past warnings about his conduct, Robert Harrison asked the officiating deacon at baptisms to omit the sign of the cross and to make further changes in the baptismal service. In January 1574, the school board reported his nonconformity action to the authorities, which resulted in him being deprived of his position. Bishop Parkhurst took further action against him, removing him from all parish duties. Harrison, having lost his board and lodgings, returned to Cambridge. Matthew Parker, Archbishop of Canterbury, died on 17 May, 1575. Approaching the end of his life, he noted with regret and disappointment that these Puritan ideas of governance could in future undo the Queen and all that depended upon her. His conduct set the ideal example for Anglican priests, and he was buried in Lambeth Palace Chapel, later giving his name to Matthew Parker Street, located near Westminster Abbey. The Church of England, led by Matthew Parker, formulated the 39 Articles during the Convocation of 1563. These articles serve as the foundation of the Church's doctrine. On 26 July, 1575, the authorities appointed Edmund Grindal as Archbishop of Canterbury to replace Matthew Parker. There is no proof that the new Archbishop ever visited Canterbury, not even for his enthronement. William Cecil, wishing to appease and work with the moderate Puritans, advised Grindal to modify the severity that had defined Parker's approach towards the nonconformists. Thomas Helwys was born in Gainsborough in 1575. His parents were Edmund and Margaret Helwys, descendants of an old Norman family. Edmund had sold his family land in Lincolnshire and Northamptonshire and taken a lease on Broxtow Hall in Bilborough Parish some four miles west of Nottingham, moving his family there. Richard Bancroft pursued his studies at Jesus College Cambridge and graduated with an M.A. in 1574, Bishop Richard Cox from the Diocese of Ely ordained him a priest. The university granted him a license as one of its twelve preachers. Bancroft received his first pastoral appointment in 1576 as the rector of Teversham near Cambridge. Ely is a cathedral city in Cambridgeshire, 14 miles northeast of Cambridge and 80 miles from London, the seat of the Bishop of Ely. The cathedral originated in AD 672, when St. Etheldreda built Ely Abbey. The building dates back to 1083, and was granted cathedral status in 1109. Until the Reformation, it was the Church of St. Etheldreda and St. Peter at which point it was re-founded as the Cathedral Church of the Holy and Undivided Trinity of Ely, and continued to be the principal church of the diocese. The city stands on a 23-square-mile Kimridge clay island, which, at 85 feet, is the highest land in the Fens. The Isle of Ely is so called because it was only accessible by boat until the waterlogged Fens were drained in the 17th century. Still susceptible to flooding today, it was these watery surrounds that gave Ely its original name, the Island of Eels, a translation of the Anglo-Saxon word Eilig. In 1576, Henry Barrow entered Gray's Inn, attending courts and acquiring a familiarity with legal procedures, which later would stand him in good stead. In 1576, Thomas Cartwright visited and helped to reorganize the Huguenot churches of the English Channel Islands. 
After revising the Rhenish version of the New Testament, he settled as pastor at Antwerp, declining the offer of a chair at St. Andrews. The Rhenish or Rhine Bible was a large format Bible printed in 1478-1479. Often named the Cologne Bible, it appeared in two varieties of German, Low Saxon, and Low Rhenish. All pre-Lutheran German Bible translators translated from the Latin Vulgate, a version of the Bible authorized for use, by the Roman Catholic Church. The two volumes are illustrated with 113 and 123 woodcuts, respectively. The woodcuts, which illustrate scenes in the Old Testament and the Book of Revelation, introduce to its readers historical figures such as King David and the Evangelists. However, the most striking illustration is that of the creation scene. The decoration in both volumes was hand-colored in a style that influenced all subsequently embellished productions not only in Germany but throughout Europe. John Coppin was a Puritan minister in Bury St. Edmunds and a Browns Norwich congregation member. He enthusiastically adopted the teachings of Robert Brown, preaching his doctrines in his native town of Bury St. Edmunds and selling and distributing books written by Brown and his associates. For this conduct, the commissary of the Bishop of Norwich committed him to prison in 1576 for false and malicious opinions. Amazingly, Coppin remained in confinement for seven years, he did not endure restrictive supervision or close surveillance, his family even lived with him for a time. Whilst in prison, Coppin found a fellow disciple in Elias Thacker, another prisoner. The men's violent language created such disorder in the prison that the magistrates requested the Bishop of Norwich and Assize judges to relocate them. However, the bishop and the judges refused the request. Power is in the hands of the Archbishop, Edmund Grindal, 1575-1583. William Cecil, encouraged Edmund Grindal the Archbishop of Canterbury, to initiate a reformation of the judicial authority held by the ecclesiastical courts. Regrettably, a disagreement led the Queen to halt Grindel's work. The Puritan clergy had started organizing prayer meetings, called prophesying, which Elizabeth found displeasing. In these meetings, the Puritans used a more liberal approach to prayer which did not adhere to Elizabeth's specifications. Elizabeth and her advisers feared the spread of this idea could challenge her religious settlement. Modeled on the Zurich Prophet site, Puritans had learnt of the practice through contact with the congregations of refugees from Zurich who had settled in London. Ministers would meet weekly to discuss so-called profitable questions. These profitable questions included topics such as the correct use of the Sabbath, advocating the observation of the Sabbath as Sunday in Christianity, in keeping with the Ten Commandments. Queen Elizabeth objected to the growth of the conventicle movement for in her opinion it was a secret and unlawful religious meeting of people with nonconformist views. She ordered Archbishop Grindel to suppress prophesying all meetings for sermon training and discussion, which had come into vogue among the Puritan clergy, she even wanted him to discourage their preaching. Instead of carrying out the Queen's instructions, Grindel responded with a long letter, defending prophesying, citing Paul Corinthians 14 as supporting text, before finally adding that I choose to offend your earthly majesty, rather than the heavenly majesty of God. Unfortunately for Grindel, the queen, took offense. 
Thus, in June 1577, she suspended the archbishop from all his jurisdictional functions for disobedience, though not yet his spiritual ones. On 15 March, 1578, John Udall entered Christ's College Cambridge as a sizer and soon transferred to Trinity College. Born about 1560, he was an English clergyman of Puritan views. It was around this time that Robert Brown made his return to the Cambridge area. Richard Greenham, the Puritan rector of Dry Drayton, befriended him and even permitted Brown to preach in his church. In the Domesday Book, the village was listed as Drayton. However to differentiate it from Fen Drayton, lying five miles to the northwest. It was known as Dry Drayton by the early 13th century as it was susceptible to drought during low rainfall periods. Brown was also permitted to preach at St. Bennet's Church, located seven miles away. St. Bennet's is a Church of England parish church in central Cambridge. Parts of the church, most notably the tower, are Anglo-Saxon, and it is the oldest church in Cambridgeshire and the oldest building in Cambridge. The church was dedicated to St. Benedict of Nursia, the founder of the Benedictine order of monasticism. Benet's is an attempt to reconcile the Anglo-Norman name Benet with the Latin form of the saint's name Benedict. Greenham encouraged Brown to complete his ordination and serve at a parish church, even arranging a lecturer position offer at St. Benet's. However, Brown's tenure there was short-lived. Brown rejected the offer of a preaching license from Richard Cox, the Bishop of Ely, and convinced his friend Harrison to decline a similar proposal. Brown then took the initiative and began preaching in the area without any license or authorization from the bishop, doing so for a further six months without ever requesting payment. In another turn of events, Queen Elizabeth again ordered Archbishop Grindal to take all measures necessary to suppress prophesying. Despite being under house arrest, Grindal, the Archbishop of Canterbury, stood firm and refused to comply with his Queen's demand. In January 1579, Secretary Wilson told William Cecil that Queen Elizabeth wanted to dismiss Archbishop Grindal for not following her orders. Thankfully, Cecil was able to convince Elizabeth to abandon this harsh measure, but it only provided a temporary respite. While Robert Brown was traveling around Cambridgeshire, he fell ill, possibly contracting plague. With no other place to go, he was forced to return to his father's home in Tolethorpe, Rutland, hoping to recuperate. Whilst Brown is recovering, he was formally forbidden to preach by the church council. Edwin Sands, graduated with his BA in 1579 at Corpus Christi College, Oxford, and was admitted as a fellow the same year. He was born on 9 December 1561 in Worcestershire, the second son of Edwin Sands, Archbishop of York, and his wife, Cecily Wilford, 